Hello, welcome to Spotlight, lighting the darkest of artistic corners. Spotlight, brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. This evening, we catch up with local author Joanne Clegg as her second book of historical fiction hits the shelves. Another poem from youth bard Eva Petrova. And the service players celebrate 80 years for the restaging of their first ever play. As always, do get in touch with any creative artistic endeavours you may be involved in, planning, hoping to create, or would really like to, yes, put in the spotlight. Poetic, visual, theatrical, musical, literary, mime, something we haven't even thought of yet in an artistic direction. Do get in contact, spotlight, at manxradio.com. And we'll feature you here, on the programme, on the radio, yes, the real radio, and on the podcast. Or email me direct if you're feeling modest, Howard Kane at maxradio.com. So, regular listeners, that's all of you, of course, will recall we had a chat with Joanne Clegg a few months back, well known to many for her work here on the Isle of Man, local media, television, you name it, she was there. But she's now an author, and when we spoke to her last, she was just about to publish her first book, The Ragged Valley, a gripping story set in 19th century Sheffield, with fictional characters against a backdrop of real events and places, Sheffield being her old hometown. Well, I'm happy to say the first book had rave reviews, being described as powerful, absorbing, a must-read for saga fans, and in what seems like the blinking of an eye, but is around six months in reality, I think. The second of the trilogy is out. The Girl at Change Alley tells the story of Louisa Lee, a former maid now trapped in prostitution, desperate to escape, but with no easy way out. I could tell you more, but instead, let's hear from Joanna herself. You want the rest of the story? Buy the book. Canelo have contracted me to write three. Um, they're called the Sheffield Sagas. So um, book one came out in June, and book two has just come out, and then book three will be out next spring. So it's been a bit of a whirlwind, actually. <laughs> so were they all in, in your mind when you're writing? Did you, did you have each of the stories plotted out in advance, or did you sort of finish one and then have the outline of the next, or were they all actually mapped out from beginning to end? Yeah, um, not really mapped out, um, but I knew I knew while I was writing book one who I wanted the focus to be of book two. So I'm finishing book one and thinking, yeah, th- this, this relatively minor character from book one is going to be the focus of book two, so what's the story going to be? And I've just almost completed book three, where I've taken characters from books one and two so of course over that period of time I've just grown to to love them all so much actually they're like real people to me now and one thing I have found actually is that um, doing the research just threw up so many ideas Um, so that's helped in terms of of plot um, to to add to the characters lives. And is it a linear timeline throughout the three books? It is, yeah, and and that's on happened actually almost by accident. So, um, book one is set in eighteen sixty four, and book two in eighteen sixty seven, um, and I've picked eighteen seventy three or is it eighteen seventy two for book three, which fe- actually feels a little bit random to me. Um, but book two was the height of the um, Union outrages, 
So that's how I came up with the date for that. So I am, I'm, I'm moving forward in time, which actually is lovely again because the, the, the characters are growing up and growing older. So it's that's been really interesting, yeah, yeah, to bring them along almost in time. So give us a little praise of this one, then, without giving anything away, clearly. <laughs> certainly reading about it, it seems like it's a little bit grittier, I don't know, a little bit harder-hitting. Possibly, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 these were, were gritty times, mm. you know, and, and, I, and I'm writing from very much a, a sort of a working-class perspective, so it's it's going to be gritty by its, by its sort of very nature. But, um, yeah, so the character I took from book one my central character comes into contact with this period of time um, where there was a lot of union unrest and gets involved in what was called at the time the outrages where um, a particular union leader was doing things like um, he was having his henchmen shoot people put gunpowder down their 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 chimneys all, all sorts of things were going on and there was a commission of inquiry about this and it actually led to the official recognition of union so it was the kind of it was the birthplace Sheffield was of of trade unionism which I know sounds actually quite dry but it's when you look into the history of it it's so interesting and again I'm Sheffield born and bred I didn't know anything about the flood that was the focus of book one Mm -hmm. and I didn't know Sheffield was the birthplace of workers' rights. I confess I didn't either, to be honest. Yeah, well, I'm from Sheffield. You know, you'd think I I might know that sort of thing. So that's that's where the the research uh, just really comes into its own. I go, yeah, wow, what an amazing period of history. That will, that's the plot around my characters' lives. And how did you actually originally, because you say you're Sheffield born and bred, what was it sort of drew to this period to start there? Because you could have, in theory, started anywhere, I suppose. I could have done, actually. And again, um, almost by chance, uh, I was writing about my grand. Well, I wanted to write about my grandparents' lives, and that would take us through the twentieth century, from about. Um, well, my grandfather was born in nineteen nineteen, and actually looking back now, I can see that was probably a bit too ambitious. But while I was researching their lives, I came across an account of the Great Flood of eighteen sixty four, and I just, I, I just knew that was it. That that actually was my starting point. So. If it is a linear timeline, that suggests that if you've got one more book which you said you're working on now, uh, is the aim for it to carry on beyond there? I really want to. Yes, I really do. I mean, I think I'm going to have a little rest after book three. (laughs) Um, It's been quite a crazy time. Um, But, yeah, I'm so invested now in in the characters um, and they do return. I've actually had people ask me about the main characters in book one, what happens to them so actually i'm quite relieved that they're in book two <laughs> um yeah so and and i've got ideas for books four and five featuring pretty much the same cast almost i mean i'm introducing new people as i as i go along but yeah actually at the moment what i'm thinking is i'd just like to carry on yeah Which whether is- the publisher thinks that i don't <laughs> know <laughs> It is fiction, of course, but is is it important for you in your writing style? Because it is, like you say, there is this gritty realism to it, and it's set against a background of you know real places and, and real real events. I think is that very important for you in your writing? Yes, very important. Um, I'm always aware, especially being from Sheffield, uh, things like street names. I want to get them right, and even the um, the incline of a of a road. Um, so little little details like that I think are important. I mean, especially for, you know, if I've got a readership in Sheffield, 
that's that will they'll pick up on on you know things like that and it takes you out of the story doesn't it you know if there's a a, a historical inaccuracy like that um but broader picture the outrages and the great flood yeah there's a little bit of license that i've taken there but i've tried to get all the basic facts correct um but i always say to excuse myself um <laughs> it's not a, a history textbook you know don't take everything as gospel but i try to be accurate where i can be yeah well, we were just chatting on the way before we started this interview and you were saying you've been doing an interview just uh, the other day with bbc radio sheffield do you have a steer on on your audience after i mean the book one's well out now book two's coming out and uh, hitting the, the shelves as we speak do you have much of a steer after fir- after the first book of your audience, whether you have got an audience actually around the Sheffield area, or is it more people well known, well known on the Isle of Man, of course? Is it sort of do you know where your audience lies? Is it a real mix? I think yeah, you know what, it's, it's hard to know actually. I think there's a nice mix. I've had some feedback from um, people from Sheffield who said, oh, you know, great, a book about about Sheffield's history. Mm. Um, and I've seen you know little little bits and pieces in in reviews. Um, which I have been reading, although I shouldn't really, but I do. Um, <laughs> That's always dangerous, isn't it? It it's is a, always yeah. dangerous. It is. Um, but actually, it, it also gives you a handle on on who's reading it. So, um, yeah, I, I actually think I've been lucky with my audiences because I probably do have an audience in the Isle of Man um, and I probably have a, an audience in Sheffield mm. as well. So, yeah, and hopefully uh, further afield. Uh, and... The writing process itself, we spoke about a little bit of the last time, and we were again chatting as we came up about you saying how you've become more engaged in the, in the marketing side of things and all the sort of, I suppose, the aspects of being an author you don't think about in that you can't just, there we are, I've written a good book, job boxed, finished. It's not as easy as that, nothing ever is in life, is it? Has your writing process evolved, do you think? Um, or is it still very much the same, or do you think you have a very set, clear way of what works for you? Yeah, um... I don't know. You know, I'm 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 probably a little bit more chaotic. Um, I did think I might be one of those people who would sit down in the morning and write for four hours and produce two thousand words a day and do my research in the evening and editing and so on. But actually, no. I just I do write early. I do get up early and write as much as I can before the day even really gets started. Um, but then, yeah, I am chaotic, and um, so I can write. You know, I could write go home and write a couple of hundred words now and then do a bit of research and then I'm about to hand book three in so I need to kind of do, do a little bit on that um, and what I have found as well is that um, I don't need complete silence and I think that's from years of being in a newsroom in a newspaper yeah, newsroom busy environment. yeah so actually I do find I'm quite productive if I go to a cafe and sit and get my laptop out with all that noise going on around and people watch a little bit because that's all part of it isn't it and then uh, yeah, get some get some words down then. Uh, Still an enjoyable process. I love it. I I really really love it. I just feel really lucky actually to to be able to to do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm enjoying every minute of it. Um, sometimes, like you say, the marketing and 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 doing interviews. You know, in, interviews like this, it's um, it doesn't come naturally to me. Um, social media I've had to to learn a lot more about uh, I actually credit my son in, in book two because uh, he helped me with Instagram <laughs> um, so there, there's that side of it like you say you think you're just going to sit down and write a book and that's your role but actually yeah there's a lot more to it yeah but I'm enjoying it 
So a short break after, well, book three, as you say, going in shortly into the publisher, a bit of a short break then. And Possibly. then do, do you have sort of, again, not giving anything away, but do you have a formulation <laughs> in your head of where you might go, all things being equal? I've got some, I've got some ideas again, and again, moving forward slightly in time, although I am really invested in the period that I'm in, the, the mid to, not late actually, just mid-Victorian period. Um, so yeah, I've got some ideas. Um, and I think now actually I would struggle not to write all the time. You know, I think I'd find it hard to, to stop doing it. So yeah, so I say I'm going to take a break, but I probably won't. <laughs> Well, look, many congratulations. It looks fantastic again, doesn't it? You must be delighted with the actual production of the book. We've got one here from uh, Canelo, as you say. Absolutely looks the business. Marvellous uh, front and back cover. Some lovely uh, praise for the Ragged Valley as well on the back, which is terrific. Um, available in all good bookshops, as they say. Yes. Any book signings? Um, oh, <clears throat> yes. Um, if I could um, uh, mention that I'm doing a book signing this Saturday um, at the Bridge in Ramsey, in Parliament Street in Ramsey, 11 o'clock on Saturday morning. Get yourselves down there then, Bridge, this Saturday. If you want to have a word with them, she'll be happy to uh, sign up, have a little bit of a chat, without giving anything away, of course. And uh, that time again, Bridge it's, Bookshop, Ramsey. Yes, it's at 11 o'clock. And, and can I just say that that is one of the one of the best things about this whole process, is signing books and chatting to people. I love doing that. So, yeah, if people can come along and say hello, that'd be great. The Girl at Change Alley is published by Canelo and is available now. Spotlight, brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. A bit of poetry. We heard from Manx Bard Michael Manning the other week, so let's hear from the youth bard Eva Petrova today. Here she is to introduce the piece to you herself in her usual, wonderfully polite manner. She puts me to shame. Good evening. A slightly older poem, which, unlike my usual work, doesn't have a very large message behind it, other than maybe to say, don't lie. This poem focuses more on the structure of 13 stanzas of four lines each, both supposed to be unlucky numbers, and the rhyming pattern going A, B, C, B, D, E, F, E, etc. It's a twist of the truth and a twist of language. Enjoy. Deception. Spin me in your web of lies, a spider crawling under my skin. Words to you are an object to be manipulated on a whim. Mirrors to innocently tilt the truth, a dodgy reflection behind the glass. Cowering under the sea's surface, a heaped up, lazy, tangled mass. Hold the decaying fruit of your soul, extracting the seeds oozing juice beating it to a pulp of what it was, young innocence bruised by abuse. Start with something small, a scrap piece of stolen food. Soon you're misusing ideas, lying when you feel in the mood. You'd be an expert storyteller. There'd be nobody better than you at twisting reality with fantasy and rotting the very core of what's true. Inventing the people I know of in places they've never been taking inspiration from real situations, slotting yourself in gaps in between. It's become your true second nature, a pleasant way to fill your pastime, adding even more pieces to the puzzle when I uncover your pantomime. There's no need to hover in your own shadow. I see right through your act anyway. 
the clockworks visible as they tick, thinking a polite brain sprinting away. Raise the protective shield of untruths you deny. Of course, you're always right. As if the truth leaves you vulnerable, trying to impress everyone at first sight. Slip chosen characters into your game, writing all the new rules as you play. Change the plot every time you lose, and there'll be nobody left for you to slay. A place as desolate for you as it is, no longer included, not to be trusted. I find I'm questioning everything you do. There's not a single rag left unadjusted. Whisper me lies to gain my secrets. Promise me a lock without the key. Hold the strings to us the puppets. Drag us all along on your mad spree. Even when rock bottom is above you, still you lie away out to fall until all the truth that remains, a needle in a haystack. Nothing at all. Evie's got to have a great career in poetry ahead of her, hasn't she? A future Manx Bard, surely, should she decide to stay on the island long term. Don't forget, by the way, the Celebrating Creativity Together initiative we featured the other week is still continuing. The booklet and video now available online. I'll put the details on the podcast page. Hard copies of the booklet will be available next week. There's also a post with a social media video on the Altman Government Facebook's page. Check that out. And, of course, listen to the Spotlight special podcast featuring Jane Critchley and all the others talking about celebrating creativity together here on the island. Finally, but by no means least, the service players, well known for their fantastic stage adaptations in recent years, of all sorts of television shows, Blackadder, Dad's Army, Vicar of Dibley, to say nothing of Dick Barton, Toad of Toad Hall, the list goes on. Something a bit more serious this time and celebrating a special anniversary in 2022 with a very special production. As Secretary of the Society, Lisa Smith explains. This month, The Service Players is presenting Night Must Fall at the Gaiety, which is the first production that the Society ever did in 1942. So this year is the Society's 80th anniversary, and we thought it would be a wonderful way of uh, acknowledging that milestone by, um, by presenting the first play that we ever did. Uh, back then, John Pertwee, who was one of the founding members of the Society, uh, he played the main role, Dan, uh, and this year in our production, we have the wonderful David Dawson playing that character. It's a real gem of a role, uh, and um, I'm certain it's one of the reasons why uh, the founding members decided to do, uh, to do this play. Uh, it was fairly new back then. I think it was written in 1935. And it um, it looks at a, the character of Dan. Um, it's very complicated and uh, multifaceted uh, and it's unlike anything I think that had been done before so um, I'm certain it was uh, one of the reasons they decided to do it um, and uh, yes I'm, I've am i been absolutely uh, overjoyed watching uh, David 
tackle this uh, this character. It's um, it's been wonderful watching him in rehearsals. Um, and the other two main characters are Mrs. Bramson, who is an old lady in a wheelchair who takes a liking to Dan and brings him into her life, and the life of her niece, Olivia, played by Rachel Jockin. Um, the two actors actresses are absolutely fantastic, um, award-winning, as is David, uh, and they are supported by some wonderful um, actors as well, uh, Thomas Ian Dixon, who people will know from Shrek and uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, John Snelling, uh, who people will know from more many things, but Spamalot, um, King, he played King Arthur in Spamalot, and Badger, he played Badger in uh, in The Wind in the Willows a couple of years ago as well. The whole cast is uh, is really stellar. We've got uh, Kelly Firth, uh, Claire Kayser, Helen McKenna, all playing. Uh, um, some fantastic roles in this um, in this psychological thriller. Uh, yes, it's it's going to be a real a real joy for to watch the um, the atmosphere and the tension that builds up in this play is uh, is something to behold. I think it's going to be a really fantastic night of entertainment at the Gaiety Theatre. This is a bit of a departure for us uh, because we are best known, I suppose, for farce and comedy we do do drama as well and uh, we've done over the, the past couple of decades we've done Stoppard and uh, Chekhov uh, Agatha Christie um, but it's uh, it is true to say that we do generally uh, enjoy our comedies more um, so The Night Must Fall despite being the first play that the society ever did is something unlike uh, uh, the the recent produ- productions that we've put on. Um, so it's a real, a real pleasure to do something different. The next project for the sister, uh, the next project for the service players, will be taking part in the One Act Festival, which uh, next year will be a part of the Easter Festival at the Gaiety Theatre. So we are organising our entries into that at the moment. Uh, so if anyone's interested in acting, directing, working backstage, uh, it's a fantastic opportunity uh, to do so. And if you wanted to get in touch, then uh, find us on Facebook and get in touch that way. We are always very welcoming of new members. Um, It's uh, a very friendly society uh, with very little pressure on people. So uh, it's a, a really... A really nice way of uh, of getting into theatre if you want to do that. Night Must Fall is on at the Gaiety Theatre between the 10th and 12th of November, so there's not much time to book those tickets, people. A great cast, a great play. It's bound to be popular. It is a tense psychological thriller by Emlyn Williams, of course, as Lisa was mentioning, which has had three film adaptations to the best of my knowledge. And as the tagline says, it's frightening to think what a face can hide. That's about it for this week. Don't forget, if you want to hear anything again, go to manxradio.com, download the Spotlight podcast, listen where you want. Why not try it as little bedtime listening with a mug of cocoa and perhaps a Farley's Rusk for old time's sake? I'll be back next week. 
when we'll be catching up with the Arts Council and hearing about Blue. Drop me a line with any artistic thoughts or ideas. Stay creative. I'll see you then. Cheerio. Cheerio.